0: And welcome to this episode of G220 Radio. My name is Mike. This is episode number 604, and we'll be talking about evangelizing Mormons. We have a special guest, Pastor Nace Howell, will be joining us here shortly to talk about his book, and we'll get to hear about him in a little bit. But those watching, notice that Ricky is not here. Um, Ricky wasn't able to join us tonight. Um, and so I'll be be trying to do this alone. It's been a while since I've done it alone, so hopefully this runs uh, somewhat smoothly because I'm not used to being behind the records. But joining on joining with me now is Nace Hal. Welcome to the show, Nace. And being a first time visitor, um, we always like to off- give our guests an opportunity to kind of hear how God has saved them. And then because we're talking about Mormonism, just how you got involved with uh, apologetics, especially kind of contending with the faith against Mormonism.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I started out, uh, man, I uh, started out going to college because I wasn't sure what to do with my life. And uh, got a uh, bachelor's degree in Bible because I was turned down from a job that I re, uh, that I put an application in working as a youth pastor and uh, I asked one of the people there I was like what, what will it take for me to get a job doing this And he's like, well you could go to college I was like, well that was like a light bulb that went off so I, uh, <clears throat> I went to college and then after I graduated my bachelor's degree I continued with my masters of divinity in apologetics and I think it was there where I was mostly uh, curious about Mormonism i I didn't actually know any mormons growing up we never I never talked with any uh, other than people who came to my door right but I uh, I probably got a pretty deep curiosity in Mormonism. when when I was going to college for my Master's of Divinity, and I continued with my doctorate. And as I moved to the reservation, the Indian reservation where I live now, uh, I found that it was pretty uh, populated, highly populated with Mormons. So then it got even deeper. and, And then I ended up writing my dissertation on... Mormonism and published a book from that. So that's pretty much what it looks like in a nutshell.
0: Thanks. Yeah. I'm, I don't think I met my first Mormon until I was in the military and we became good friends. We were, um, we had training together, and then we were stationed at a first base together. And then he got sent to uh, England. And then three or four months later, I got also sent to England and we just kind of had a fellowship, not a fellowship. We had a friendship Um, being that we're just kind of a little bit different. And I was an aircraft mechanic. It's kind of a rough world and just learned a lot about Mormonism. It's where I was exposed to the parable of the bicycle, which I just shared with Ricky a few weeks ago a kind of like how they understand how to be saved and Mm. kind of to think through, okay, what are they trying to say? How does that match what I'm learning from the Bible? And then also kind of that reconciliation is they have these other books that they claim are also inspired by God. You're the book of Mormon, which is probably the most popular known. The doctrine of covenants the pearl of great price the other two and just how do we how do i think through these issues and you know going to college and then thinking more about these um i haven't been able to interact with them as much um in louisville we have more of a Jehovah's witness presence at least in the area that i am and and i've interacted with them with more but it's always good to refresh and think about these things and i think part of it is you you were mentioning this in your um, introduction is just kind of the point of apologetics. So kind of being that's what you ran on, how would you kind of define apologetics, especially when we're dealing with these kind of Christian like cults?
1: Hmm. Yeah. Uh, So apologetics uh, it comes from the, the New Testament, the word. I mean, like it comes from before that. But the New Testament itself uses the word apologia, which is the Greek word where we get the, the word apologetics. It uses the word 17 times, if I remember correctly. But it means to defend or to reply in defense. So I use First uh, Peter chapter 3 verse 15 uh for like the the prime example of the word so to speak it says set apart Christ as lord always be ready to give a defense apologia uh to those who ask the hope that was it is that is within you and do this with gentleness and respect uh so <clears throat> yeah i uh i think that uh, there are some other things like 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse five or yeah, 10:5 comes to mind where uh, the same ideas that we are supposed to uh, like destroy strongholds that are up against the knowledge of God. Uh, these kind of ideas. Jude verse three it says to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Uh, so apologetics is the defense of the faith. Uh, and like, I would say that it's a philosophical branch. Uh, it Like uh, it's a branch of philosophy, so to speak. So that's how I would pretty much describe it in a nutshell off the cuff, so to speak. But
0: yeah. Yeah. I think there's value there I think looking I misspoke, I said in your introduction. It's actually your first chapter about you have this the idea of apologetics calls for more than just knowledge of the Bible, but also calls for people to not be in the dark when it comes to other faiths. And I think um, yeah. thinking through yeah. that is is important. I you I think you mentioned later, like it's not even just like we'll talk about Mormonism kind of as a system, but an individual may not fully agree with everything or may not know everything that's within that system. So can you kind of like explain a little bit more about how apologetics can be kind of in one sense, the idea of learning Mormonism specifically, but a, a religion counter to Christianity more broadly and how to, how that interplays with kind of even a personal, um, kind of personal conversation with someone you just met, whether they came in the door or you're doing evangelism in the open air?
1: Yeah. So I I usually use, like, at least I usually have in mind this classical apologetics approach that I use, uh, that I apply towards Mormons, which is like, number one, the idea that the truth can be known. So I make sure that that is established and that not only can the truth be known, but, uh, the, the idea that we're on the same page. I think that's another thing with apologetics is that you have to define and make sure that you're talking about the same definitions, so to speak. Uh So I, uh, Like when you say the word Jesus, when a Christian says the word Jesus, it's different when a Mormon says the word Jesus or, you know, God or, you know, anything like that. Even Bible, believe it or not, I would say. Uh, So I try to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. And then uh, I go through like truth questions on like the three fundamental laws of logic. Right. So that's the, what I just talked about first was like the law of identity. It touches the law of identity that something is what it is, so to speak. Uh, and then I go to like the law of non-contradiction. Like, so is either true for instance, that Jesus rose from the dead or it is not true. It can't be both. Uh, it can't be both in the same sense and at the same time uh so also like for to apply this to mormonism you could say something like uh it is either true that the exalt the doctrine of exaltation is true or it is false the 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 doctrine of exaltation is false it can't be both true and false in fact The law of excluded middle says that it can only be one or the other. Either the claim the doctrine of exaltation is true can only be either true or false. There's no other alternatives. So uh, I established that the truth can be known through such things. I use examples like light bulbs, like, for instance, either the light bulb is on or it's off, that kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But, like, then I go from there uh, that the truth can be known to the arguments for the existence of God, which, in a strange sense, they already believe. Mormons already believe in the, the, the... You know, they already believe in God or that something exists. But uh, the problem is, uh, the problem I find is that they don't always believe what their scripture teaches. Like you were talking about, you might, you might end up knowing more than they, what their scriptures say. Right. And, uh, they just believe what they're told, so to speak. Um, but like their scripture is what my, my book goes against, so to speak. I, uh, I I looked at their scripture and if there's problems in their scripture, then there's got to be problems in their beliefs because what else would their beliefs come from as far as uh, their their canon, so to speak, their standard But <clears throat> in any case, I go from the idea that God exists, which I, I talk about what I call them, the mormon cosmological argument for the existence of god i go from there and and describe the nature of god according to what the mormon texts are telling us and then i go from there to talk about the veracity of the bible that the bible is true and it's not how they describe it as being like uh recorded over and and like manipulated and in translation and such things. So uh, I think that no matter what one does, as far as their method of witnessing to Mormons, I think that uh, if they read this book, for instance, that they can make their own method from it. You know what I'm saying? Like they, it might not be like the perfect recipe, so to speak, for your discussion or whatever. But I think that we need as much ammunition as possible, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I really resonate with the that idea of defining terms. Yeah, um, you know, because you mentioned, you know, how they define the Bible. I mean, even when you think about how they define grace and mm. setting those out um i know in some of my early experiences with Mormonism, we weren't defining we were using different definitions in our argument and now this being that i was naive and not knowing um how mm. to argue and maybe some of these different apologetics ideas with like getting on the kind of com- common terminology and how to decipher these things And I look back on that. I was like, man, only if I would have been better at kind of this philosophical aspect. I didn't take a philosophy class until I was at my second bout of college. um, Hmm. Many, like three, four years later. Hmm. And to, to think about how important that, and even when I teach on Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses, it is defining those terms. This is how they define grace. This is how they define faith. Now let's let's is that how the Bible defines it? You know, like you're saying, finding our truth in the text of Scripture. Mm-hmm. So we've mentioned your book. I don't think we've actually mentioned title. So your book is titled "Mormonism yeah. Impossible," refuting the yeah. fundamental doctrine, Mormon doctrine using apologetics to reach the Latter Day Saints. And you, primarily you go after the doctrine of exaltation. You've already mentioned it um, about it. What is the doctrine of exaltation? This may not be, again, terms. We have, Christians yeah. have a doctrine of exaltation. Yeah. What do the Mormons believe? And kind of use that kind of terminology.
1: Yeah, so I would say that the Probably the strongest part, uh, the strongest uh, reference to the doctrine of exaltation is found in what they call the Doctrine and Covenants, which is one of their four sacred texts. So it, uh, it, you could probably reduce it to two verses, though they're very long. One of them is, uh, this is Doctrine and Covenants chapter, well, section 132, verses 19 and 20. Uh, Joseph Smith writes, and again, verily I say unto you, if a man marry a wife by my word, which is my law, and by the new everlasting covenant, and it is sealed unto them by the Holy Spirit, and this is really long, by the way, again, so I'll just skip to, to the uh, the other parts. It says, if ye abide in my covenant, and commit no murder, whereby To shed innocent blood, it shall be done unto them in all things whatsoever my servant hath put upon them in time and through all eternity, and shall be of full force when they are out of the world, and they shall pass by the angels and the gods which are set there to their exaltation and glory in all things, as hath been sealed upon their heads, which glory shall be the fullness and the continuation of the seeds forever and ever. Verse 20 begins with the phrase, Then they shall be gods, because they have no end. Therefore shall they be from everlasting to everlasting, because they continue. Then shall they be above all, because all things are subject unto them. Then they shall be gods then shall they be gods rather because they have all power and the angels are subject unto them. So that's like the idea of the doctrine and, uh, the doctrine of exaltation. I would say this is one of the most fundamental doctrines in Mormonism that we find. Uh, I think this doctrine sets it apart from Christianity, for instance, more than anything else. Um, like that could be probably argued but <clears throat> i think this is what sets them apart more than anything else i mean we we like we talked about their their difference in the definition of like the word jesus for instance but perhaps if they didn't have this that definition wouldn't be so different you know what i'm saying yeah. um but like the doctrine of exaltation literally teaches that when a man dies it is possible that he can become a god, and uh, I would argue that, like this, was one of my uh, this was one of the things that I wrote in the book because I know that Mormons often scoff at the idea that, uh, le- like the way that evangelicals or Protestants or whatever understand their theology, they scoff at the idea that that uh, a man can become a god of his own planet and then they say things like it's it's uh, like for instance fair f a i r it's a uh, <clears throat> a mormon apologetics website and if you you can look this stuff up and, on the internet and and, and they say uh, that it is like they they say that it's like uh, i don't know a, a mis, mis misapplication or like miss misspeaking about Mormonism or something like that. But that is in fact what their scriptures teach that you can become a god of your own planet. Not only their scriptures, but uh the King Follett sermon, for instance, Joseph Smith, uh that like there there are many different sayings in The uh, history of Mormonism, for instance, the King Follett's sermon says, uh, as God is, man one or no, as God is. Oh, let me see. I got to get this right. It's always like tricky for me. Uh, As man is, God once was. And as God is, man may become. So what that says is that a man can become a god. Uh, but there's there's a whole bunch of other things in there that talk about how a man can become a God, like Joseph Smith. There's many sermons that the the LDS website publishes even today that uh, say that Joseph Smith's saying that uh, God, the God that we have now is a God of flesh and bl- flesh and bone, like just like what we are. Right. So that's uh, one of the things that I, I try to refute in my, in this book.
0: Yeah. The section that you read, I find it interesting um, that he says, if a man marry a wife to my word, which is my law. Yeah. Yeah. um, This seems to imply that that women are not cannot obtain this kind of godlike status or become yeah. a god. Um, yeah, yeah. Have that is that still kind of common within kind of modern day teaching, or are they kind of to be? I guess with the times, kind of distancing yeah. themselves with that kind of um, statement.
1: Yeah, I would say they are distancing themselves with that idea. The idea that only a man can become a God. Uh, Nowhere in Mormon scripture is the phrase heavenly mother named, right? Uh, Uh So heavenly father is the way that Mormons uh, describe God. That that phrase heavenly father. So they use it like as an endearing term. Um, But... Yeah, there's no mention of heavenly mother in the the four uh, like uh primary scripture of mormonism. Uh and there's never a mention of a a woman being able to reach the same status as a man. I I have a blog article which I mentioned some of this in my book, but uh there is a there is some uncanny resemblance between Mormonism and Islam. Uh-huh. You know, like, I argue that they're both religions for man. Not, for men, not, you know, for for anything else, but specifically for man. A man-made religion for men. Yeah. But yeah, like, uh, I, I think that in that section that we were just reading in Doctrine and Covenants, uh one of the requirements is that he is married another requirement in that same verse is that he has never murdered anyone and by those two things uh this says that uh they shall be gods in verse 20. now there's something called the 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 three kingdoms, right? The celestial, the terrestrial, and the celestial kingdom. The celestial is the highest kingdom in Mormonism. And if you don't reach that according to like what their website and, and their scriptures teach, then you can't become the God of your own planet, so to speak. You can't become a heavenly father. So it's, it's a very interesting, uh, it's a very interesting theology and they don't uh, like from one Mormon to the next, they might believe slightly different. uh, They might believe slightly different things, but um, it's kind of like, like it's not like Buddhism to where you can uh, like all sects of Buddhism follow the four noble truths, for instance, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not so much like that. Uh, it's more like they they don't they're 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 told what to believe, so to speak, by their uh, their their uh, teaching books, the books that they're taught in what they call seminary, and the uh, the doctrine and covenants, and the Book of Mormon, and the Pearl of Great Price, and what. Uh, what they call the quad. Uh, They add the Bible to that as well. But I would say that they're most familiar with the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. And that's where we find the Doctrine of Exaltation.
0: So kind of thinking through this, um, I know in my conversations with Mormons, they always talk about kind of everyone's a spiritual child like the devil and Jesus are spiritual siblings. Um, Is the doctrine of exaltation kind of flow from that? Or is that kind of how they reason back to those types of ideas? Because the heavenly father, from what I've kind of, if I remember this correctly, is once, and you kind of mentioned it, was a man and did the things that he is now calling all, all people and what the Mormons are trying to do um, right now to get to that celestial kingdom or celestial heaven.
1: Yeah. So uh, I understand this coming from the book of what they call Abraham, the book of Abraham, which that's, that's a, a huge rabbit trail in itself but uh it says in abraham chapter 3 verse 27 well 24 it says there there was like this council going on in heaven right and it says mm-hmm. there stood a one there stood one among them that was like unto god and he said to those who were with him we will go down for there is space there speaking of earth And we will take these materials and will make an earth whereon these may dwell. And in verse 27, it says, uh, And the Lord said, Whom shall I send? And one answered, Unlike unto the Son of Man, Here am I, send me. And another answered and said, Here am I, send me. And the Lord said, I will send the first. And I think the idea, it says in verse 28, the second was angry and kept not his first estate. And at that day, many followed after him. And I would say that this is where they get the idea that Jesus and Satan were talking with Heavenly Father. And Jesus volunteered to go down to earth. And, and then Satan did. He's the second one. And that's where they, they have the understanding of where Satan came from. You know, like Jesus is a, a spirit child uh, of Heavenly Father, and so is Satan. And I think that they look at it like uh, they're just both simply created, which is kind of interesting because from what I'm understanding with a lot of Mormons is that uh, they will say that Jesus always existed especially when they're talking with the Christians, uh, with Christians oh. sometimes. Uh, but, but the problem is I find what, what do they mean by that, that he always existed, right? Uh, and often I find that what they're saying is that Jesus, the particles that made up Jesus always existed, and they were rearranged at one point in time to make Jesus as we know him. I'm like that's what I've heard before and uh, but their their scripture doesn't teach that. Uh, you'll find in their scripture that Jesus is a created being. Uh, so that's kind of one of the one of the nuances that we've, we we uh, run into when we're speaking with Mormons. That's why it's 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 essential to discover what they mean when they say Jesus. So, yeah, it can be, it can be difficult to navigate conversations like that.
0: Yeah. Again, emphasizing the importance of definitions. Because we do, because we believe that Jesus is eternal. The eternal begotten one of the Father, who has existed in all, in all of eternity. Yeah. Um, But they make that distinction, well, parts of him, which finds, uh, which is fine. I've actually I I did not know that. That is a fascinating fact. Mm-hmm. Um and go on. Man. Kind of thinking through this, um, also in your second chapter, you kind of go um and try to explain that they talk about the what and the who and the when, but they never say why. Um kind of I guess the question and I, this kind of moves into kind of maybe the meta, the metaphysics um, why don't they elaborate on the why men become gods?
1: Yeah, that is a great question and I honestly am trying to discover that myself. I think that uh, that it it mostly boils down to they don't uh, Mormons are taught at a young age to not think critically. Uh, I was just speaking with an ex-Mormon today where she said that uh, she's reading my book as well and she's fascinated by it and it's bringing up a whole bunch of different memories and, and she was saying that she wants to meet with me about it. and uh, But she was saying that, and, and I find this to be a typical response, that uh, <clears throat> they weren't... They're, they're never told to think outside the box. They're never told to think philosophically about their own claims, so to speak. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think that uh, this simple little question of why is it the case that men become gods, I think that is ultimately what destroys the, uh, the phil- philosophical claims of the doctrine of exaltation. It's a pretty wild, uh, wild thing to think about, and that's really what I based my my book on was that little question: Why is it the case that men become gods? Not how. Uh, and often, I think that when you're talking with a Mormon, if you ask them the question, "Why is it the case that men become gods?", they won't answer why; they'll answer how, right? Or they'll answer why in a different sense, like. I've had a Mormon say to me once, um, I, I ask, why is it the case that Mormons become gods? Uh, he said, because our Heavenly Father loves us. And I'm like, no, that's not what I mean, you know? Like, I mean, why? Why Why is it the case? Like, what, what enables it, in a sense, you know? Uh, and then he's like, I don't know, I never thought about it, which kind of <laughs> confirms some things, you know? But yeah, that's I would say that's one of their, uh, they're, they're not taught to. They're taught to think whatever, like what they're told from Mormon scripture and to not question it. And I think that the ones who do end up leaving the Mormon church question it. So with that in mind, I think one of the best things that we can do as Christians is to plant seeds of doubt in their own thinking, like make them cause to have questions, uh-huh. like cause questions within them so that they, you know, they, they can't sleep at night. That's literally one of the goals I would say.
0: Yeah. Um, in Greg Kokel's book, um, tactics, yeah. he talks about putting a pedal in their shoe, getting to yeah. getting them to stop and thing. I think it's important. Like, you know, short conversations, you can't dismantle, their entire theology. Now God can work in the gospel and change them and, you know, to do that. But sometimes it's just better to get them thinking, get them to, to kind of question it. And you see it, you hear about it in different, in different ways. Just even like, just the having a different lifestyle that shows and improves and to get to people to thinking mm-hmm. through it. So we've talked a lot about kind of the what they believe um kind of what is like phrases kind of what is kind of the Christian understanding how do we kind of, think through some of these same issues. We don't, you know, historically, we don't have this belief that we become gods. But, you know, what, how do we think about kind of God as the heavenly father, where he dwells, his prophets, kind of now kind of, I guess, in one sense, bringing a positive teaching to what we believe as Christians.
1: Yeah. uh, So, In my book i teach that uh i I think pretty early on i teach about the trinity in comparison to what they believe about god and i i always like i take uh dr william lane craig's uh idea about um teaching that the trinity is taught in the bible uh, and we begin by looking at the Shema, which is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? Uh, so God is one, yet he exists in three persons. And I, I look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, that we are to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I look at John chapter 10, verse 30, uh, it says Jesus, Jesus says, I and the father are one. And what's significant about that is immediately after that verse, they wanted to kill him for blasphemy. Uh-huh. Um, and then I go to say Acts chapter four or Acts chapter five, verses one through four, where I would argue that Peter calls the Holy spirit God. Um, and, <clears throat> But there are there are many different verses that teach the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible, and that's that's like uh, where I where I go to show Mormons that uh, the that Heavenly Father is completely different than the way they're thinking that he is. Uh, so with the law of say uh, non contradiction, it can't they can't both be correct, right? Either God is this way or he, or he's this way, or rather, uh, either God is a trinity or he's not, right? That, uh-huh. That's how we'd have to look at it. So, yeah, that's, uh, um, I, I, uh, I talk about the trinity early on, and, uh, and I compare. It's like a comparison of how Christians look at God versus how Mormons look at Heavenly Father which is how I distinguish the two throughout the book. Anytime I mention the word Heavenly Father, it's talking about the Mormon the Mormon God. <clears throat> so uh, they also have like a different idea on the word Supreme, which I go through uh, a rather lar- a large section about the word Supreme. So they say uh, they have many texts that say That describe god as a supreme being uh yet you can't really argue that he is actually supreme from their same texts uh but but in contrast the bible we can see that he's supreme uh for instance isaiah the you know like all of the chapters with in the 40s for instance they say things like i know of no other rock there is not one right he says i i am the only the only one uh that kind of idea so which is goes against what mormons are saying about uh men can become gods if that's the case and uh heavenly father lived on a planet that Uh, he had his heavenly father right and he became exalted through the doctrine of exaltation and became the heavenly father of this planet who was his heavenly father right and who was uh, heavenly father's heavenly father's heavenly father if that makes sense forever basically which uh, the Mormon cosmological model requires, according to their uh, their theology, it requires an infinite regress, which I, I argue that, that is impossible as well. Um, we arrive at today, for instance, so it can't be an infinite set of time. When God, the Bible talks about God being, uh, you know, infinite yesterday today and forever right like he is the same <clears throat> uh yeah he has always existed in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was with god in the beginning so yeah, yeah. Uh, through all things or er, through through him all things were made right so he was there before the beginning is what the Bible teaches.
0: Yeah, I remember uh, in evangelism class, my professor here at Southern Seminary um, went through how he walks through Jehovah's Witnesses using the New World Translation to show mm. them that the Trinity is inherent in the Bible. And just the verses, when you think about how in the Isaiah 40s, that the... Mm. the savior is the lord is called the first and last the alpha and omega and yet those same titles are used for jesus in revelation and it's clearly connected like revelation i think it's one seven where it says i died and have rose again i am the first and the last using that same language and um i think i did a show I, i was recalling back i think about six years ago, just kind of working through what my professor gave me and thinking through this in the context with Jehovah witnesses. But even like, as you mentioned here, the Trinity is so foundational to our faith that even Mormonisms don't, be, can't believe in the doctrine of Trinity and hold to a lot of what they believe and yeah, kind of foundational. And one point, too, that I think is important to bring about. So we, you know, even in this discussion, Trinity, we would say that Trinity is, while not, the word's not used in the Bible and comes later, um, the concept is there. That's why we've given Absolutely. it a name to do it. But one thing you are talking, you know, we can say that and the Mormons um, disagree with it. How do kind of the texts of the Bible relate to these kind of other three, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Mormons, the prayer of Gate Price? I know you mentioned it um, kind of off on, but how important is kind of the distinction between those three versus kind of the the Bible like specifically, and I know this, that it's a certain translation of the King James version of the Bible.
1: Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So I would say that the Book of Mormon, for instance, is their—that uh, is like their their billboard script, right? Like they want to show that off first. If you notice, you'll never hear a Mormon say you should read the Doctrine and Covenants. They don't want to uh, like everybody gets into a hot tub slowly, so to speak, right? <clears throat> you don't just cannonball into a hot tub, and that, and I think that the Mormons know that trick, and there'd be a lot of questions, and it would be a lot of problems if they uh, handed out the Doctrine and Covenants or the Pearl of Great Price, even. Uh, but the Book of Mormon is is actually uh, it's it's filled with Plagiarism, plagiarism from believe it or not, Isaiah. Uh, what's interesting though is that we don't find uh, the texts that talk about God like in the 40s, so to speak. Like you don't find uh, you don't find Isaiah 43:11, for instance. It says, "There is uh, besides me, there is no savior." Uh, you don't find that. God says, I know of no other rock. You don't find that in the Book of Mormon, but you'll find these long swaths of uh, the Book of Isaiah. And they even say in the Book of Mormon to to compare it to Isaiah. You know, they'll say, compare this to like Isaiah chapter 60 something or whatever. Um, But... Uh they don't get into the doctrines in the Book of Mormon. I would say that uh, for instance, the doctrine and covenants is possibly not even found in the Book of Mormon. Um, like one 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 doctrine comes to mind that is in 2 Nephi chapter 25, verse 23. It says, uh, and see if you can pick this out a little bit it says for we for we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do right Uh so comparing that to ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 for instance we know that it is by grace that we are saved this not of yourselves it is the gift of god so that no one may boast there's a they're, they're they're talking about two very different ideas there either uh either salvation is a free gift that we cannot earn like even in part or salvation is partially a gift that we can earn those are the two differences uh the bible says that salvation is a free gift and that we we cannot earn any part of it uh, but the but the Book of Mormon saying that it is by grace that we are saved. After all, we can do. So I like the way uh, Lynn Wilder in her book, it's called Unveiling Grace. She describes the Mormon uh, Jesus as uh, <clears throat> this janitor who comes behind you and cleans up the sins that you can't, you know, you can't fix or whatever. So yeah. I, I find that a helpful analogy. The sin janitor, she calls it. Uh,
0: I, yeah, that is a good one. I like. I like that. Yeah. Um, because you always hear. I don't know if they have actually, if they have actually said this, but I've heard it. Kind of the idea is, you do the best, and God does the rest. Yeah. Kind of mentality, yeah. and that was really um, when my Mormon friend was showing me the pair of the bicycle are telling me about the pair, the parable of the bicycle. And for those who don't know what I'm talking about, it is a video on their YouTube where they explain it. But the short version is a daughter wants the bike. The father has her do work to get money. She doesn't have enough money to buy the bike. So she gives her money to her father. And then her father buys the bike and she gets the bike. And that's the representation is that she did the best that she could. And then kind of, as you said that Jesus as a spiritual janitor came and fulfilled the rest of it. And like in that parable, you can just, you can see how that is contrary to Ephesians or to, you know, even what, um, jesus talks about about denying yourself and picking up your cross and being one that is spiritually um poor knowing kind of our where we stand before the father and upon grace giving all that we have to the lord is just completely contrary and i think you know you attack it through here in um in your book on their idea of the exaltation, but even in, you know, dealing with how they do salvation, you can tell they are rotten at the core. And no matter where you kind of poke, you can see the errors in it. And I think that's important too. That's why we need to know our Bibles so that we can yeah. be able to identify the errors when we're learning about these religions. I think, uh, Jeff Durbin or it was James Robert or James White said on one of their podcasts, I was listening that um, and this hits hard as a Southern Baptist, but that Mormons like the Southern Baptist because they know just enough Bible to convert them. And that was mm. like a very like hard thing to think about, about how theology does matter if we don't know our Bibles, we don't know theology when these false teachers teachings come around, it's hard for us to stand against them, to refute them as you know, you're trying to help Christians to do, to think about not only their theology, but how does it counter what we believe? And I think that's why like discussions like this are important to have. Good time. So kind of now thinking we've kind of, thought a lot about kind of their doctrine our doctrine um how can we as christians kind of use this to put a pebble in their shoes to try to really get them to think about some of the the problems that we can see either biblically or logically kind of in that philosophical thought to try to help the conversation without kind of turning them off from further discussion, I think that's kind of a, a key point there too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, <clears throat> I think it's it's good to uh, like First Peter three fifteen says, "Always be ready, right, to give a defense for the hope that you have within you, but do this with gentleness and respect." Always be ready. So, uh, same with the second. Timothy chapter four, verse two, be ready in season and out of season, right? Correct and rebuke and encourage with great patience and long suffering, careful instruction, depending on your uh, translation. But like often you'll get in a conversation with a Mormon and they'll, uh, if you ask them, uh, say, for example, uh, which Jesus are you talking about, or something along those lines? They may like. They may like scoff at the idea that there are more than one Jesus. Uh, which I've I've run into that quite frequently. They they think that we are talking about the same Jesus. So to show them that we are talking about a different Jesus. <clears throat> I usually go to like say, 2 Corinthians chapter eleven verse four. Uh, the Bible says, Paul says, uh, he says, uh, if if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, than the one we proclaimed, uh, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel. He says, you put up with it readily enough. And he's talking to the Corinthians. But he says this also in uh, the same idea in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, uh, that there is no other gospel. Uh, it's there's, there's only one gospel. And the Mormon gospel and the Christian gospel is not the same. Um, so I would say it's helpful to show these differences and as first Peter three fifteen says to do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, I, th- I, find that a lot of the times asking them questions like what Greg Kokel teaches in tactics, uh, asking them questions is not offensive. And if they're getting offended by an asked b- by a question, um, then, uh, they're, they're, uh, <clears throat> They're assuming something. They're assuming that you're saying something. Um, But like, if you just present it as a question, like that can help them uh, create seeds of doubt. It can help them have questions about their own faith that they can't answer. Uh, And I would say the best way to cause these questions is to go about it philosophically for which, you know, uh, many of them haven't been trained in, uh, but also they haven't gone beyond what their scriptures teach, and uh, like especially philosophically. Now, you you will find some Mormons who are uh, philosophically uh, like minded, or or that they've they've read philosophy or they've studied philosophy, but. It is so few i find like i live in small town nowhereville montana for instance you know what i'm saying so uh philosophy mormon philosophy is not something i literally have ever ran into uh, where like where i live like in the real world so to speak um but academically in academics you might find that some some Mormons have studied philosophy, then it's a different conversation, but uh, you can still place doubts in their shoes, or uh, yeah, to mix metaphors, you can still uh, plant seeds of doubt or put a stone in their shoe, like Greg Kokel talks about, by asking certain questions that uh, just aren't answerable. Uh, I, I find that often they go back to uh, the multiverse for many of their answers, right? It's it's like they use it the way that God, uh, that atheists uh, accuse Christians of using the God of the gaps theory, right? The God of the gaps, uh, rather, uh, kind of excuse. So, yeah, I think that asking them questions is really helpful, questions that are hard for them to understand. I asked a Mormon one time, for instance, uh, why is it the case that men become gods? When I explained what I meant, it was not he didn't come back with an answer like, uh, well, it's because Heavenly Father loves us. He knew what I was talking about. He knew I was talking about it philosophically, and he didn't have an answer. So <clears throat> uh, I was hoping that he would come back to me with an answer later on, but he said, That he doesn't know so I would say that uh, Mormons they almost uh, are almost required to put the kind of faith that Richard Dawkins accuses Christians to have which is blind Mm -hmm. faith I don't believe that Christians have blind faith we have evidence for our faith our faith is evidence-based right uh, on the other hand, with Mormonism, and I go through this archaeologically speaking in my book, uh, there is no evidence for what the Book of Mormon teaches, right? There's nothing archaeologically that we have ever found uh, in contrast with the Book of Mormon. Uh, we In the Bible, <clears throat> like, you can literally go to the city of David, for instance. You can go to the Areopagus in Athens, uh, but the, the uh, like in my own personal, you know, tiny collection, I have three uh, um, widow's mites, which ironically a Mormon bought me one of those. But uh, it, it's kind of interesting that I have, you know, in my own personal collection, like what I'm saying is anyone can have them because there's so many of them. But in the Book of Mormon, we find, like, these coins that were mentioned, uh, they, they were, uh, and, and the values of the coins, we, we don't find any of them. There's not a shred of evidence, archaeologically speaking. So uh, put those kind of questions in a Mormon's mind and uh, pray about it. I would say uh, pray that they, that they question, that their heart is softened, toward this kind of, uh, idea that, uh, God would use these questions to cause them to, uh, uh, just, you know, stir up something in their minds, so to speak, because they only, uh, they only believe through their heart, I would say, uh, that's what the Moroni challenge kind of teaches, so... It doesn't talk about, like, for instance, in Christianity, uh, Jesus says in the Great Commandment, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, he says, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And if you read, for instance, uh, J.P. Moreland's Love with All Your Mind, I think it's titled, Love God with All Your Mind, uh, I can't think of it. It's something like that, but the idea is that uh, as an American church, we've neglected this worshiping God with our mind, right? Uh, but we still do that, right? we We talk about doctrines and we talk about uh, theology and philosophy and apologetics. Uh, but on the other hand, with Mormons, they don't. they don't worship God with their mind. They worship Him with their heart. Uh, and that's what the Book of Mormon tells us to do. Uh, the Moroni Challenge, it says, uh, like, see if these things are true, and and you'll be notified in your heart, basically, uh, kind oh. of an idea. But, the
0: uh, burning of your bosom, I think, is often yeah. what they would yep. say.
1: For sure, yeah. Yeah, so that's how I... Uh, I I try to plant seeds of doubt and I, I go by uh, like the three, those three steps that I mentioned in a classical, uh, classical apologetics approach. Um, And the second one is probably the biggest one. They, the second step is that uh, I, I show them that God exists, but he must exist in a different way than what, uh, Mormonism teaches because it doesn't it doesn't uh, follow philosophically, logically, so to speak. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, that's that's how I try to come about it. And and you know, oftentimes your conversations with Mormons or anyone in evangelism are very quick, so you have to go where you can, you know, and uh, so. Sometimes it, it can be difficult, but hopefully the goal, like I said, at minimum is to plant seeds of doubt.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Those conversations always so quick and you never get them right. There's, you're yeah. always should have said this, could have said this.
1: Yeah.
0: So I want to thank you for joining our show. If you are interested in his book, you can buy it on Amazon in kindle which is the version i bought um but you can also get it in paperback if you or hardcover if you like the the feel of the textile and read it um i read the first i read the introduction um and then i've kind of skimmed over other parts and it is it has been a very good read it's easy to understand and at least i've found it easy to understand i'm very um, be able to, but I think is, um, and just kind of thinking through some of these issues, um, will be helpful for Christians who are engaged in Mormons. or Maybe you have a Mormon friend or family, or just if the Mormons are more active in your area, I think this will be a, a resource to, to read and to think over and to consider and to, if you're, um, interested in those ideas, Um, Do you have any other last words or comments you'd like to say before we leave?
1: Yeah, I I would say that uh, one of the major things is that we need to remember to keep our conversations with anyone that we discuss uh, Christianity with in in prayer. Bathe your conversations in prayer. Um, But yeah, I would say that's the... That's the uh, that's where it happens most, I would say. Yeah,
0: always a good reminder to pray for those who we yeah. seek after in evangelism. <clears throat> and with that, this has been episode number six hundred four. We've been talking to Pastor, um, nice, not nice, nice Hal, uh, who is nice. Uh, about his book Mormonism impossible Um, and join us next week for another topic, which I don't remember offhand. I know Ricky's told me that's my bad. So this has been Mike on behalf of Ricky. Um, Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next week.
1: Thank you for having me.